Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Leah Houston. She is a former biomedical researcher, an emergency room doctor, and co-founder of a company that's bringing blockchain technology to the healthcare field. We have a great discussion about the philosophy behind Bitcoin and the blockchain, why decentralization is critical for the future of healthcare, and how burdensome regulations hurt the doctor-patient relationship. Thank you for listening, and let us know what you think. Thank you, Dr. Houston, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, I've been following your work on Twitter, and I think it's really important that people understand um, where blockchain technology is going. We heard a lot of buzzwords about it in the last few years, and it seemed to die down. But I see that as a good sign that it's being um, integrated in more of the establishment. And just to give you a little background of where I come from with healthcare, is that I've been sick for about 30 years, chronically ill, chronic pain due to ulcerative colitis at age 11. At age 12, I had my colon removed. From then, I've had 20 surgeries, 50 hospital stays, hundreds of doctor's visits. And so I've seen healthcare from the patient side. So I'm always glad to talk with doctors who are freedom-minded, who are looking out for the doctor-patient relationship and the individual choice when it comes to your health care. Now, with your blockchain technology, what are you trying to accomplish by bringing that into the healthcare sphere? I'm essentially trying to uh, create a sense of freedom and autonomy for both doctors and patients. Uh, you know, right now, we live in a centralized world where, you know, you've had a lot of medical experiences, you know, every time you interacted, you were likely interacting with some form of system, whether it be an insurance company or a health system or a hospital. And um, in our current environment, over the past 20 years or so, we've seen lots of consolidation of these systems and vertical integration. And that's essentially creating larger, larger systems that are fewer and fewer, which gives people less personal choice. And it gives a lot of control to entities that you know, may not really be uh, the most ethical, moral people to be controlling our decisions and our behavior. Right, definitely. I think we are living in a, more of a, a centralized world. And with that comes, like you talked about, that, that people who are making these decisions aren't making them for uh, in our best um, you know, for our, our best outcomes, definitely. They're, they have other, they have other um, goals than, than prevention uh, in holistic health and with actually optimizing with health. Now, are you seeing doctors, when you're bringing this concept of blockchain to them, are they open to the concept of them controlling their own identity as well as patients and then being having a more peer-to-peer healthcare system? Well, I think um, there's a little bit of a learning curve with this because we have lived in the centralized world because the centralized world is all that we've ever known. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a leap. It's kind of on the edge of reality for a lot of people. Uh, but with the Cambridge Analytica situation and the Facebook situation and the GDPR move that um, the European Union just made, people are becoming more and more aware of uh, the fact that their data and their attention and their time is valuable to these large corporations. And as they become more aware of that, they are uh, a lot more open to the conversation about solutions to kind of mitigate those problems. Yeah, excellent. I'm glad you brought up the idea that the data and attention is worth money because we've been told that, uh, you know, these services are free. But in reality, they're not. That you're paying a price with your privacy, you're paying a price because they, they actually do studies that try to get people addicted to their apps. And yes. it's, it's important to, to realize that our doctors, because even doctors are, they're prone to the same ills that the rest of society is with being addicted to social media and using it and uh, getting sucked into that world. Uh, what are you, when you talk about educating uh, healthcare providers, now you talk about blockchain, how would you describe blockchain to somebody who's never heard that term before? Um, so my favorite way to describe it is to explain that, um, number one, blockchain is a technology similar to the internet that can be horizontally applied across industries. 
Um, you know, back in the early 90s, when the World Wide Web was just launched, you know, we heard of email, but it was kind of an abstract idea. And we could have never imagined, you know, fast forward 30 years, and it would be touching the fabric of our lives. I'm sure the majority of people who are listening to this especially uh, couldn't function without the internet nowadays. Their, their lives in some way or another would come to a screeching halt. Um, and we couldn't have even imagined that 30 years ago. Uh, but similar to the internet, blockchain is going to be horizontally applied across industries and it's going to touch the fabric of our lives, whether it be front facing where we know it's part of our, of our existence or whether it's really just only in the background you know, helping us store and analyze our data and helping us communicate. So that's one thing I always say. And then to explain how blockchain technology works, uh, essentially it creates a situation that allows us to communicate and transact without the need for a trusted third party. So um, any platform that we currently use, um, aside from the, de the truly decentralized platforms like Bitcoin, I love that you have the shirt on. Yeah. Um, that's a truly decentralized platform. Bitcoin not banks. But, but any other platform requires some form of trusted third party. So Facebook, for example, we have our identities on Facebook, but Facebook is a centralized corporate structure that owns and controls our identities. They can delete us, they can mute our posts, they can monitor us, they can commoditize on that data. Uh, if we want to buy something, unless we're using cash, we're using a credit card. That's MasterCard or, or Visa's as a third party that's required to, in order for us to build trust to broker that deal. Um, so Bitcoin allows a technology where we no longer need a third party, where we can transact peer to peer. And if you think about it, Facebook is just really a ledger. It's a ledger of our conversations and our relationships, uh, just like our banks have a ledger of our you know, transactions and our phone bill has a ledger of our phone calls. So if you think about it, that's one copy of one ledger of our transaction that's now kept in their centralized space, which if their servers all blew up, our data would be gone. Um, you know, so blockchain essentially takes that ledger and every single transaction that's made, it's automatically copied onto thousands of computers. And in order for a transaction to be made, the previous transaction needs to be validated and authenticated across all the other computers. So it essentially prevents the ability to cook the books. Because if one person crosses out one line on one of those ledgers and says, oh, that was a $10,000 transaction, not a $2,000 transaction, then it won't be validated because it won't match the others on the ledger. And so that allows for the disintermediation for the need for a third party because we have all those computers validating everything. That's a great description of it. And I like that you talked about Bitcoin specifically for blockchain. A lot of times I mm -hmm. think there's some of these organizations that are um, the centralized establishment, if you will, in finance or in other industries, they're using the term blockchain, but they're using it, I think, in a different term, not to empower the individual, but to collect and store more information. Right. And so really, if you look at the blockchain projects that are out there, the majority of them are closed permissioned projects. And they're essentially very secure and, um, you know, they're secure databases that are going to be used for, you know, usually supply chain type um, types of things for for companies. So, for example, we've heard about the E. coli and the lettuce situation. Right. And they had to throw all this lettuce away because they didn't know where the lettuce came from that had the E. coli on it, so they threw it all away. Well, you know, uh, distributed ledger technology has the ability to track um, these things from through the supply chain. So you know that this head of lettuce came from that farm because it came from that bin, and it's been tracked on the ledger. Um, so in corporate American enterprise is very excited about that because it can save them a lot of money. Uh, the securities issues is, are very helpful to have, you know, your security, if it's, if it's decentralized, especially if it's connected to a hash function and um, essentially, you know, masked by cryptography, there's no way for, there's no reason for a hacker to hack in because they're only getting that one copy of a ledger. Right. 
Yeah, definitely. And when you talk about the term decentralized, how do you explain that to people that we've talked about that we live in a centralized world? And I think the, the central banking system is the epitome of the centralized world. And that's why Satoshi Nakamoto, he created Bitcoin in 2008 and 2009 and went live, was as an alternative to that centralized system. What do you think are the benefits of decentralization when it comes to individual freedom and, you know, more specifically to healthcare? So, um, the thing that makes a decentralizing technology powerful is the communities behind it. So it's community driven. And so just like there's, you know, gangs in South America that are, you know, pushing the drugs through the drug trade. And there's just like there's community church organizations that are working to, you know, help their communities and feed the homeless and things like that. There's good communities and there's bad communities, but the communities, the people, the individuals are the ones that are driving these situations. And so a decentralized technology allows for individuals who use the network to power the network and to be in control of it. Um, not some corporate big wig and some board of directors that was voted a long time ago and the one guy gave, you know, slipped the, com the company a couple hundred thousand dollars to be na named a board of director, even though he's not qualified and the nepotism and all these things, you know, it allows for organizational structures that are um, free from hierarchy, essentially, and that are community driven. Yeah, that's a That's a great point about th that. We're always going to need have a need for community as human beings. I think that's in our genetic code to need other people. And what is the best way to organize that? And I think that's what is exciting about blockchain decentralization. Now you've got a specific project that you're working with doctors with a, a decentralized autonomous organization. Now I've probably gone just about as deep as the Wikipedia page on that concept, but, <laughs> but how, how do you talk to doctors about that specifically in and that's only allowed because of the blockchain technology. Is that correct? Yes. I'm, I mean, this is one of the main, in my opinion, one of the biggest gifts of blockchain and distributed ledger technology is the, the potential for a DAO. Um, for, so we talked about decentralization, what that means. And the other two words are autonomous. We all want to be autonomous. We all right. want to be free to do um, what we want to do in this world. And then organization it provides an organizational structure around that. So when you are acting um, autonomously, you have the power of the community that's driving uh, these processes. And that's the whole community driven portion. So, um, you know, I, I love the concept of a DAO. And I do think that DAOs are how we're going to make decisions in the future. Um, you know, I think that we're going to have self-sovereign digital identities. Uh, and when I say that, I mean owned and controlled by you, not Facebook, not Twitter, not LinkedIn, not the government, not, not the government, not your social security card, not your driver's license, where these people can take these things away from you without really, sometimes they have a good reason, sometimes they don't, but more of a community driven um, uh, type of process. And, um, you know, if you have a self-sovereign identity and it's truly self-sovereign, you can take that wherever you want to go. Um, so, you know, we're moving into a global economy. A lot of people are doing a lot more traveling. Commerce is mo being moved across borders. So, you know, especially when it comes to healthcare, there's a lot of medical tourism because of the cost of healthcare. Right. So if you want to, you know, have your gallbladder surgery in South America by some famous gallbladder surgeon who has better outcomes than the guy in your hometown, um, how can you get there? And how can he know who you are? And how can you know who he is? And how can you know that this famous guy is actually famous or does he just have a really good marketing company? Um, and I think the concept of digital identities for humans where you have your credentials as a human, your birth certificates, your country of origin, all in a digital wallet, along with your credentials as you know your profession, where you went to school, what kinds of licenses you have, things like that. Uh, it allows us to communicate effectively, to know who you're talking to, um, to trust that who you're talking to is the, who they say they are. Um, and that builds the, what they call a trustless system, but it's really a trusting system.
It is, and that's based on cryptography and the people behind that, right? The the miner right. system where, where you talk about the distributed ledger that you have to have a consensus when any new information is added to the next block. Right. And that so that's, that's a safeguard right. about cooking the books, like you said. So that's that's yeah. That's and I think yeah. uh, the government probably doesn't like that, and some of the big corporations don't as well. I heard that J.P. Morgan is coming out with their own cryptocurrency, so I would be very interested to see how that's going to play out. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I don't know a lot about it, but I heard it's going to be tagged to the value of the dollar. Um, you know, I don't know. It's, JP Morgan is a centralized bank. Right, exactly. So, yeah, they're buddies with the Fed, definitely. Do you think that right. the, with the, the talk of blockchain and you having these discussions, this education with doctors, are they being more open to accepting cryptocurrency as payment and as a, as a payment system? I think at this point, so I do know some physicians that accept crypto, okay, um, awesome. which is cool. Yeah. Uh, they're direct, direct primary care doctors who are diehard libertarians and who like the idea of, of financial freedom and freedom of choice for both them and their patients. And it's awesome. But I do think that the user experience needs to be improved yes. um, for people to really want to adopt this. Um, you know, the security lies with you as an individual. Mm -hmm when we're talking about this technology. There's no IT department there that's gonna help you get your password. Um, so those types of things, the front-facing user experience, um, the ease of use of things, as soon as those things become um, uh, better, mm -hmm. I think more people will be willing to play with it and adopt it. Yeah. Uh, but the self-sovereign identity, there are good technologies around that right now that are being built. Um, that ha do have a pretty decent user experience that, um, you know, they're continuing to improve upon. So are those like a, um, like a crypto wallet, you were talking about the credentials for self-sovereign identity. Would it be similar to that where you would have your, your own wallet and have, you would be the only one that could add to it. Um, and just like you control your, your Bitcoin, I like the idea that your Bitcoin that you have to be responsible for that. You talked about that. And I think in our financial system, we really have a moral hazard because we are trusting the central bank of the United States and the central banking system, the fractional reserve system, and then it goes to the FDIC. And now the FDIC has an open line of credit to the treasury. So that, it, that, that system of trust has really been broken down, especially with the 2008 financial crisis. I used to be in banking, so I saw it firsthand. Mm -hmm. It was a mess. I was with a community bank, and we were still mm -hmm. paying our bills, and we didn't get any TARP money, but they, were, they still had somebody come in and, and take us over. We got shut down and taken over. Uh, so I think Bitcoin, once people start understanding it, the, the, um, the system gets improved as far as onboarding. I think people will, are looking for an alternative. Um, to the current payment structure because there's a lot of censorship going on as well with payment systems acting as a uh, risk mitigator so they 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 don't want to deal with certain people now do you think with the uh, the DAO that you're talking about with doctors do you think one day that can be a system in which doctors will become licensed through these third-party organizations and it'll be an alternative system or um, to the current medical boards and the regulatory authority that doctors are under well, so this is really an important part, you know, you know, my goal is to just get doctors to have their identities and to have a space to hold their credentials. Um, you know, right now we have our state licensing boards, we have, um, you know, our residency certificates, our medical degrees. Let's just have a place to put those. You know, I was talking to a doctor yesterday who worked in the same hospital for 25 years and every two years he had to forward his documents, show them his medical certificate. They had to call the medical school. They had to fax documents over for the same exact medical degree that he showed them all the other 20 whatever years. And this is just a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, a lot of regulatory nonsense that um, has been stacked and layered over the years. That is just, that's the way we do it. And we have no other better way of doing it. So, um, you know, our goal is to have the credentials in a self-sovereign space where they're validated and authenticated once. You know, of course, for a medical license, for example, there's an expiration date. So we'll have a timestamp for that. And the state licensing board will give us our timestamp. But when we talk about the, um, 
other credentialing boards, the American Board of Medical Specialties, there's, you know, if people pay attention, there's a lot, they're getting a lot of backlash recently because they're creating these new requirements, maintenance of certification requirements, where instead of 10, 10 years board certification, now all of a sudden we have to take all these tests. And if we don't take the test, we can't maintain our board certifications. And of course, because they're these centralized bodies who are like, after the money, they're increasing the number of tests and the costs of the tests and how often we have to take the tests. And they're really not providing any value. There's no evidence to show that they are improving patient outcomes. They're just really taking the doctor's uncompensated time. It's a theft of, of not even really a theft of services, but it's more of an uncompensated administrative burden. And, um, you know, doctors are getting angry to the point that um, there's now a, um, they're suing the American Board of Internal Medicine uh, for uh, restraint of trade violations because it is a restraint of trade. I mean, there's a doctor shortage and you're going to restrain our ability to work. And the issue is that most hospitals now require board certification. So we have this private company that's not regulated and can decide when to increase your requirements that now is determining whether or not you have a right to work. And that's the real problem. Yeah, um, I was not so, aware of that. That's the other. Uh, yeah, the know. Practicing Physicians of America have a GoFundMe page. I really encourage any physician on here to take a look at that and to contribute. You know, we spend thousands of dollars every couple of years and tens of hours of uncompensated time taking these tests. So tossing uh, a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars to this effort is something that would potentially provide a lot of value to you in the long run. Excellent. Yeah, so, we'll definitely have a link on, on my website, chronicallyhuman.co. Okay. Yeah, so people can go there. And even if they're not doctors, to consider giving as well, because I think that unfortunately in, in society, we're pitted against each other a lot of times where doctors and patients, because of these third-party bureaucracies, yes. um, feel like they're, they have an antagonistic relationship when in reality, we're, we're supposed to be on the same page. I love you for saying that. Thank you. Because we are, you know, physicians, we dedicated our youth and spent all this time because we wanted to help people. You know, a lot of us could have done a lot of other things if we just wanted to make a lot of money. Um, but to sacrifice your entire youth with your nose in a book to try to truly understand the human body and um, how to understand how to, you know, treat disease and illness and give comfort to people who are sick, you know, that's really, that's what it's about. And the mainstream media is really villainizing physicians. Yes. Um, and they're doing it because they want to continue to control uh, the situations and to deflect information away from the real culprits, which are, you know, big pharma, Buka, the big insurance companies who are trying to, you know, make it appear as if we're the ones providing your health care. Well, no, I'm the one providing your health care, you know. And when you have a personal relationship with your physician, you get better overall outcomes, period. Your life, you live longer, period. The evidence is clear. Um, so to try to pretend like that relationship isn't valuable is, you know, it's really upsetting that that's what's been going on. So thank you. Yeah, not mentioning. a problem. Yeah, I think that um, you you do uh, talk about this on your Twitter feed about third party, the third party problem, that when you have third mm -hmm. party payers that that creates, I know you've used the term before, but moral hazard, not only for the, the, the patient, but I think also for the doctor and the insurance company and then the regulatory bodies as well, because they get into the position where they think they are the healthcare industry, when in reality, it's the individual patients choosing what doctor to see and then together deciding on how to improve health and well-being. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So what do you think is a solution to the third party issue? Do you think it's more regulation or do you think it's, um, I, I hate to use the word deregulation because I think that has a very negative connotation that it favors certain businesses and really creates maybe quasi monopolies, which it's supposed to not mm -hmm. do. But in reality that um, the more regulations we have, the less choice we have as individuals. What do you think is right. some of the solutions? Do you think blockchain is a solution, Bitcoin? Or do you think it's doctors getting together and starting to sue these people that will make some changes? 
Well, you know, I, I think that I want to go back to the fact that you were a banker mm -hmm. and the fact that now you are invested in Bitcoin and you have a Bitcoin shirt on. Yes. So it just goes to show that somebody on the inside of the problem sees that this is a potential solution. So I'm the person on the inside of the healthcare problem. You're the person on the inside of the financial problem. Um, and I do think that decentralizing technologies are a potential solution, especially when you think about things like our national debt and the value of a dollar. You know, if the value of the dollar collapses or if we have severe inflation because of um, economic decisions by our Congress people that financially harm our country further, uh, then our dollar isn't valuable. We won't be able to buy gas to put in our cars. We won't be able to fly and visit our, you know, you know go to Europe because the price of gas will be too high because our value won't be our dollar won't be valuable. So in a situation of economic collapse, blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency could be a potential solution because if I'm a physician and I provide a service to you and all you have is a dollar and that dollar is not valuable to me because I can't do anything with it, but I have a cryptocurrency that is accepted globally. Um, and we all decide that this is how we're going to do things now because the dollar is no, no longer valuable, then that's, you know, that changes things that changes, you know, our lives that, uh, protects us against socialist and communist types of ideas. Um, and so I think that, but the problem is, is we need to understand it and adopt it way before any of those problems happen right. or else, you know, it's not going to be a solution. And so that's, that's part of what this is about. This is about me wanting people to be able to always have healthcare. You know, people talk about universal healthcare. I want people to have universal access to right. physicians, you know, and you know, one of these days, if this happens, you know, and I'm a physician and I'm seeing a plumber you know, yeah, maybe we can barter, but this is essentially kind of a way to barter. Right. Um, having decentralized, uh, you know, uh, digital money and, and cryptocurrencies. So um, I think it's something to really think about, that this is something that could potentially insulate us against economic collapse. Yeah, I, I definitely agree on that because that's why it was created in the first place. It'll be interesting. I think we're pushing, kicking the can down the road a little bit with the current policies in place mm -hmm. that's allowing the, uh, the spending to continue without any kind of... Um, any kind of consequences that, that normal people are feeling. I think if we do go through another economic collapse, people are going to be asking, you know, what, what, what is this Bitcoin again? You know, we might need an alternative. We've right. heard that Bitcoin is dead so many times. What are your thoughts about the future? Do you think people in mass are going to adopt it or is it going to still stay this niche thing that people uh, like myself are into and interested in? You know, I, I have kind of had my head down focused on HPEC. Okay. So I haven't really paid a lot of attention to what's going on uh, right now. However, from what I knew and what I know, I mean, I still hold Bitcoin. Um, I'm going to hold it, hodl it, hodl as it, everybody right? does. So, um, you know, from what I see, after the last Bitcoin is mined, then we're going to really start to understand the true value of this cryptocurrency. I think it will always be valuable um, because there's so many people that have it, even though there are a small minority of people that have a lot of it. Right. Um, I do think that that will start becoming distributed at some point when the, you know they realize that this isn't flowing and moving, then it's not valuable to anybody. It needs and to be I used think, as a currency, right? An ex a medium of exchange. That was the original vision of it. Well, I, to be honest with you, and this is just my own little conspiracy theory. theory we love um, conspiracy I really, theories. <laughs> I really think that Satoshi uh, knew how powerful blockchain technology is. And they thought, um, you know, how do I get the world to know this? And they looked at the concept of money and they realized how much that drives humans. And they said, so how can I use this to show the world that this is valuable financially to them. Right. And I think that Bitcoin was created not really to be a cryptocurrency, but more to demonstrate to the world the value of the technology. Um, that's just my, my personal opinion. I'm sure that there's other people that have thought that. Um, 
But because it's built on such a slow, archaic and energy, uh, you know, energy inefficient system, I don't imagine it's going to be used to buy coffees. Um, I do think that there's going to be new technologies that integrate into it. So it's going to be something like it's going to a Bitcoin is going to be like maybe an ounce of gold in the future um, where you don't use it to buy coffee, but you use it as a reserve. You can use it to trade for other more efficiently traded currencies um, and things like that. Maybe. Who knows? I like that. I love that. Yeah, we we dive into conspiracies here on the Chronically Human (laughs) podcast. So that is not uh, unfamiliar territory. So I I love that take. I've not heard that one before, but I can see that that uh, that would be the way to get the word out about blockchain. I know PayPal, when they first started, they tried to become the Internet of Money and they fell short of that goal because I think they had issues with the double spend part and they didn't have the blockchain component of it. Um, so I think it's really amazing that the creator of Bitcoin is still a mystery. Uh, with the current value of Bitcoin, I think he's worth like four or five billion or something like that. At one time, he was worth 18 billion, the 44th richest man in the world in December 2017. And it's still a mystery. Do you have any thoughts on that? Who created it or why do you think it's he's still somebody that we don't know who it is? Um, I think that, um, it's wild. I don't know. I think that it's potentially more than one person. Maybe it's a group of people. I would agree with that. Um, I also think that that person might be dead. Um, uh, who knows? I don't know. Um, but whoever it is, uh, I'm hoping that their plans for that wad of currency that they have is for good. Uh, if and when they do decide to start deploying it back into the system. Definitely. I would agree with that. And I think a lot of people who've made a lot of money on that, I'm not one of those people, but a lot of people who did, um, I think they did put it to good. I think that I heard one one person say that that was the biggest transfer of wealth that has occurred in the history of the world since oil was uh, was first discovered, because it changed the actual physical economy that you had people who who didn't have wealth suddenly did. And it was yes. and it was because of um, almost like a natural resource. That's how I see Bitcoin and blockchain. It's almost mm-hmm. like a part of the natural world and right. that it's, in, it's gold. It's, do what? Like I, would, I said, gold. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's just like gold, electronic gold. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Now you talk about we'll go back to healthcare for a second. Do you think that um, that the doctor shortage is directly related to the third party issue and the regulatory burden? Or does it have to do with uh, other factors in medicine that people on the outside aren't really um, uh, exposed to? Um, It's 100% due to uh, (laughs) third-party problems. Don't don't hesitate on that. So just yeah, no, definitely not. And you know, it's really interesting. I used to be um, very liberal. I was born into a family of Democrats. I'm from upstate New York. I come from very very little. Um, so, you know, my family was on public assistance when I was a child. So the idea of social good and helping people, it's a lot of why I chose medicine. Um, and it's a lot of why I chose emergency medicine where I can take care of anybody regardless of their ability to pay. Um, you know, but after practicing and realizing what's actually going on, especially with my, uh, some lobbying work that I did throughout the years, I almost went into politics and public policy at one point. You should. Um, I realized that um, there's a lot of nonsense restricting our freedoms. Um, so, you know, we talk about universal health care. Well, you know, just because you have a card or coverage doesn't mean you actually have care. Um, I saw people in the emergency department all the time who were on Medicare, Medicaid, um, or public assistance of some sort who couldn't find a doctor. Uh, to see them, you know, Medicare pays okay, but Medicaid, you know, if you need surgery and a surgeon's only able to see 10% Medicaid patients because they don't pay enough to keep their practice open, then there's no surgical spots for you. And if that surgical problem was a tumor or a cancer, then you're going to have metastatic cancer and you're going to die. So this is a, um, it's a rationing tool. For the government, it's not—it's not an access tool. 
and you know the there's lots of regulatory issues that affect the um, physician community. For example, there's a, a sustainable growth rate freeze on funding for graduate medical education. Hmm. So people don't realize you go to the medical, you go through undergraduate medical school residency, which is anywhere from three to eight years, I believe, for neurosurgery, three years for family practice, internal medicine, emergency medicine, et cetera. Um, and in order for that to happen, the government, CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid, has to fund the hospitals. And so they give a certain amount of money for every resident to essentially pay their salary and then pay for the cost of doing business. I forget how much it is, but it's over $100,000. So you get paid, you know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars as a resident. You work hundred-hour weeks, so you're really getting paid five dollars an hour um, or less. So it's not even covering minimum wage. And then the hospital also gets a huge chunk of money because they're also losing out on the opportunity cost of training you. They're they have to pay other physicians who are attending season doctors to train you. They have to observe you. They have to monitor you. And then there's mistakes, there's overtreatment, things like that, that occasionally occur, um, you know, with paperwork. And, you know, I remember when I was a resident, I ordered a test on a patient and the attending was like, why did you do that? And I found out the test was a thousand dollar test. Um, I, I clicked the wrong box. It was an EHR issue, really. Um, and it was I was supposed to click the one below it. And it was, you know, so things like that. Residents make mistakes like that because they're learning. And so there's a freeze on that. So there's a lot of people graduating from medical school who then can't find residency spots. So it's not a shortage of physicians. It's a shortage of people who are able to train. And it is also, in my opinion, a restraint of trade issue. It's the only profession where you can graduate from medical school and not practice medicine until you have your internship and your residency. Because in order to get licensed, you have to have that training. So you can go to law school, become a lawyer, take the test, open up a law practice, you know, and the same for every other, you know, uh, industry. But in healthcare, physicians are extremely regulated and restricted by a lot of um, uh, a lot of things like that. You know, the other issue is Medicare and Medicaid. I'm automatically I have to take Medicare and Medicaid unless I opt out. So if. Uh, so it's a binary option. You have to, or you mm -hmm. don't, you can't discriminate. Um, if somebody does, you can't. Okay. Yeah. So in order for me to see a Medicare or Medicaid patient and charge them cash, um, I need to opt out of the whole system and not see any Medicare or Medicaid patients. Wow. That's the law. So it's essentially forcing me to decide between taking whatever they're willing to give me and see all these patients who depend on this service or, opt out and only see people who are willing to pay, um, you know, the additional fee. And as the reimbursement goes down, you know, I think we're going to see more and more physicians opting out. The problem is subspecialists like neurosurgeons, thoracic surgeons, vascular surgeons, you know, otolaryngologists and people who have to do these really complicated urologic procedures that need hospitals and ICUs, they can't opt out. They don't have that choice. Mm. So the reimbursement goes down, the malpractice goes up. They say, you know what, I'm not doing that case anymore because it's not paying enough and it's too risky and my malpractice is going up. So they stop doing the cases that are really high risk. And so a person like me, an emergency doctor, has somebody who comes in after a car accident with a globe trauma and their eyeballs hanging out of their face and there's no ophthalmologist that will do the case. And I have to call 10 hospitals hours away, begging them to take my patient and all the while visual loss, you know, and all the potential permanent disabilities that come from that. People don't realize that that's really the long-term outcome from, you know, a lot of these regulatory problems. You're having a heart attack. If there's no cardiologist who's willing to wake up at two in the morning and drive there or leave their daughter's graduation because the hospital's not paying them enough and this procedure doesn't pay them enough, they're not going to cover the hospital anymore. They're going to just open up their private centers. And most of these people don't want that. You know, I know physicians who have stopped doing some of these procedures 
who really were very good at them and loved performing them and really loved, you know, the benefit that they provided to patients. I mean, instead of having your eye enucleated, you now have an eye and you can see, you know, like that's the difference. But, you know, there's only so much that you can take before you say it's not worth it. You know, I do care, but I can't, I can't have financial hardship, hardship and not be able to put my children through college just so I can help these other people who, you know, the government's not paying me enough to take care of them. I think that's something that people don't really realize the amount of pressure and the layers of bureaucracy that are on top of doctors. Cause when we see a doctor, it's like five minutes, you know, and they give you a prescription basically. Uh, Terrible. You know, and, and so I think that the more that they, they ration care, I think that's a perfect word that it's not free healthcare, it's rationed healthcare. Now, do you think that you talk about residency and the bottleneck there? Do you think mm -hmm. it's an archaic practice, how medicine is taught and how, how physicians learn how to practice the art of medicine? You know, I personally don't. Um, I was in residency at the time that the work hour restrictions started. Uh, so my first couple of years of residency, there were no work hour restrictions. So I was there 24 hour shifts overnight in the ICU, taking care of 28, you know, intubated patients. And that's where I did the majority of my learning, you know? Um, and so I, I don't think that we should be dumbing down our education. Um, I do think that we need to be more kind and more humane in how we address problems of competency. Um, I do think that there's, um, there's a lot of this, you know, you know, there's a lot, especially in the surgical world, they're, they're, uh, really nasty. They raise their voice, they yell, they swear. Some people are physically abused. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm saying it not surprised. It happens a lot. It's, it's very common. However, if you remove all the abuse, but continue the intensity of training um, and the rigorous requirements, I think that's the only way to keep people safe. Mm. Um, you know, on a regular basis in the emergency department, I like think back to things that I was learning in under and not in undergrad, but in medical school that I haven't thought about in a while. And the only reason they're still in my brain is because I saw it over and over in a test and I was tested on it and tested on it and tested on it. So it, and, you know, so when I saw the patient with, you know, the cough, I knew the difference between, you know, somebody who could potentially have cancer or tuberculosis and somebody who just has a little reflux, you know, um, and it's the rigorous, long training that brings us there. So I think we need to keep the length of training. I think we need to keep the intensity of training. I do think that we need to be kinder to our residents. I think that we need to um, offer them appropriate social support, especially when they're having issues with burnout, which I think is really around physician abuse um, and, uh, you know, sleep deprivation and depression and mental health issues. I think that we need to, instead of shaming people, offer support, offer opportunities for people to take time off or to do the residency in four years instead of three, if that's possible, so that, you know, you know, mothers, there's a lot of discrimination for women who are having children in these types of situations where they're not allowed to take time off to take care of, you know, to, you know, wean their babies from breastfeeding. It's really terrible. So long story, you know, just, I think that we need to keep the intensity, but I mm -hmm. think that we can be more humane in how we do it. Definitely. I would, that's, that's yeah. a great way to put it. Cause I've dealt with a lot of residents, you know, being in the hospital and stuff before and, and they're already always stressed. They always look tired. They always look, look, look like they're beat up. You know, I don't know if that happened or not before I saw them, but that's, that's the impression that I always got. Well, I mean, it's like going to war. It's like training in the military. You know, you're doing those five mile hikes with a huge back backpack on and you're tired and sleep deprived and hungry during the training so that when that happens in reality, which isn't going to be often, but it might happen, you're ready. And there's, you know, a few days in my emergency medicine career where it was really bad, huge bus accident where I had to be on and I had to stay late. There was a couple of situations where the doctor that was supposed to relieve me didn't show up. 
So after 12 hours of working, I had to work an extra two or three hours exhausted on a six day in a row type of shift. So that training was required for me to be as efficient and on point as possible during those times. Well, it's great to hear because I don't think um, that I think doctors are, are I talked to another doctor, Dr. Thomas Klein. He advocates for pain patients due to the regulatory environment with the opioid crisis. Terrible. Uh, and uh, I've been affected by that myself. It's kind of insane to be put through pain management system that's based on criminal justice system. Uh, but yeah. he talked about that doctors are really lone wolf types a lot of times, and they don't aggregate together to tell their story or to or to push back against a lot of these regulations. Do you see that uh, with the physicians that you know, that they really are self-reliant individuals who don't necessarily uh, aggregate, just like libertarians usually don't, aggregate into groups powerful enough to make changes. Yes, I absolutely think that that's the case. Um, and I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, I've heard the term that getting doctors to work together is like herding cats yes. from probably about 15 or 20 different physicians during this journey. Um, and I do agree for the most part, but there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, some of them have to do with self-preservation and self-serving reasons. They don't want to be, you know, they don't want to help anybody else because they want to compete. But that's kind of going away. I think people are starting to realize that collaboration is important. However, there's the other issue of fear of retaliation. You know, um, there was a group, uh, I forget the name, but in the late 80s or maybe the mid 90s around when the HMO started really taking off, there were a bunch of pissed off doctors in New York who tried to get together to like essentially form a, a, a group around this. And long story short, the physicians who started the movement, um, they found something in their work life that they reported them to the OPMC. They lost their license. They lost their jobs. They were essentially blacklisted. Wow. Uh, and I want to talk to you briefly about the pain um, thing, you know, Purdue sure. Pharma and, uh, Dr. Alex Kahana is one of, uh, he's been a, an advisor and has been one of the champions on this project with me. And he's a physician, he's a pain management, uh, doctor who now, uh, no longer is practicing. He's now actually, uh, working in the blockchain crypto space, oh, nice. uh, blockchain crypto healthcare. He just was an editor of the textbook that came out that we recently had a chapter in. But long story short, you know, he was a pain management doc and he had a lot of data that he wanted to publish around um, uh, opiates being addictive and being um, uh, leading to, um, I'm like blanking on the term, but long story short, the harmful effects of opiates. Mm -hmm. And when he published it, Purdue Pharma sued him. Oh, wow. And he lost his job and he was blacklisted. And if you, you know, look up his name in the media, you'll see these like really nasty articles. This doctor wants you to, you know, wants you to suffer in pain and wants to take your me pain medicine away. It was all nonsense propaganda. He was just trying to essentially publish the truth and publish the data that he had found. And of course, now he's getting all kinds of phone calls about this because he knew. And this is not a new occurrence. Physicians often um, try to blow the whistle on uh, nasty uh, corporate monopolies that are harming patients. And it's not the first time I've heard this. And so we realize that if we speak up, we could potentially uh, be retaliated against by these systems and by these big corporate structures and by insurance markets. I mean, I, I've heard so many stories I could go on and on. But if you just Google physician suicide rate, you'll realize we're, we have the highest suicide rate of any other profession at this point. Um, you know, doctors are leaving medicine in droves. They're trying to find side gigs to make money so they can cut back on their hours because they're essentially a lot of times they're not only burnt out, uh, they're terrified. They're terrified that they're going to be retaliated against. And that's really, I think the bigger, the bigger fear around organizing. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's great to hear from a physician's point of view, because I think, um, in, a, in an odd way, physicians and people in chronic pain who have been, you know, forgotten in the opioid crisis, you know, unfortunately, that per population has increased suicides as well. And so what seems like an antagonist relationship with a doctor who won't prescribe, we're actually in the same boat under this 
this suffocating regulatory environment. Right. I mean, when I was in residency, it was during the time that the press gaining scores were coming out, which are basically doctor sat- patient satisfaction scores. And that's where pain became the fifth vital sign. And I remember very vividly the attendings that were training me were very concerned about this. And they spoke up and they said, this is crazy. But if the hospital you're working in says you have to do it this way or else we're firing you. And so those satisfaction scores, we're just doling out tons of prescriptions to everybody because otherwise they won't check that their pain was 100% satisfied and we will get fired or sanctioned or lose our bonus you know, it's the regulatory stuff, you know. And now uh, it's the other side. Took, now now yeah. the pendulum swung to the other side where, where people are scared to death of the DEA um, to write any kind of scripts out there. Uh, right, they're it, punishing the wrong people. Right. Punish Purdue, punish the slackers. Why are you punishing the physicians and the patients? It's crazy. I think it is an extension of the war on drugs. This is my conspiracy theory for the show. It's that uh, the DEA it lost and the FDA lost tons of credibility with cannabis. Personally, you know, we've been lied to for the last 80 years about it. And it's been legalized in a bunch of places. And it was 80 to 85% of the illegal drugs that were coming into the country. And the DEA was looking around and thinking, we are going to be obsolete soon. And so they... I think there wow. was, you know, they, they looked at the overdose issue and I think that got ramped up. And I, personally, I think fentanyl was was introduced as a way to increase the DEA's budget to a certain extent and the regulatory authority of these agencies who were, who were going out of business, basically, because there wasn't a need um, because of cannabis being le- uh, legalized. There is a precedent on this with alcohol prohibition when that was uh, repealed. That organization turned into the the what the predecessor of the DEA, and so they just moved wow. on to other drugs. So that's my I've take on it. I've never heard that take. I I love it actually. You know, so you think that the feds are in on it, and that they're basically supplying through private money the fence, illegal fentanyl trade. I do personally. I do think that I th- it's been proven the CIA and the DEA worked with the Sinaloa cartel for a decade back, starting in the nineties. And they actually worked with them and allowed them to funnel billions and billions of dollars into the drugs for information on the other cartels. And so they protected them from the other cartels and from any kind of uh, legal action. And plus you had the, the, the Golden Triangle during the Vietnam War and the, and the Korean War where poppies were, were planted and distributed. You had heroin coming back inside of dead GI's bodies. You had crack cocaine into the black community in California. And also with Afghanistan, it became the number one producer of illegal poppies in 2002 after the United States invaded. And there's pictures, famous pictures online of these soldiers actually um, patrolling these poppy fields. So I don't, I think it's, it's maybe out there, maybe it's a part of the truth, but I do think that that's a conversation to have. Well, listen, I, um, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, I'm not, I, I am a conspiracy theorist also. Uh, and so I'm going to actually read a little bit more about this, but, you know, from a physician standpoint, you know, a lot of this, you know, the DEA going after doctors, well, there are pill mills, you know, there are some nefarious players. There are some docs out there who are just greedy jerks, but you'll find that in any industry. Right. And my argument is that the majority of people who end up in those types of situations started off as good doctors who wanted to help people. And something happened, whether they're, they lost their job or some financial harm happened or some other type of, you know, uh, essentially disempowerment situation happened where they said, you know what, screw it. How can I make money? You know, and I'm not saying that it's good or bad. I'm just saying there's, there's a very small, small subset of doctors who are really so, you know, sociopaths right. and exactly. don't, don't give a crap. Right. The majority of people who that happened to was something bad happened to them first. Hurt people hurt people, you know. That's and true. so I think that we need to just, uh, you know, realize that and stop bl- putting blame on the wrong the wrong people. Yeah. What do you think about how addiction is treated in this country? I know that's not your specialty, but as a physician mm-hmm. who is uh, in medicine for the right reasons, personally, mm-hmm. I think that it's terrible to treat people in pain or who have an addiction as criminals. That's basically how the system has developed. 
Um, do you think that legalizing drugs or decriminalizing or allowing people to buy pharmaceutical grade drugs or transition them onto uh, medication substitutions is the way to go to help people? Because I think what the statistics I've read is that four out of a thousand people have the genetic predisposition for opioid addiction. And that, mm -hmm. so you're always going to have that subset. And a lot of those people are hurt people as well who are looking to self-medicate. And I think they're always going to find opioids. Do you think that, right. um, you know, the, the, over in Europe, they've tried this in Switzerland, in England, with a lot of good success of actually allowing people who have this disease, basically, to get, to get their preferred drug. And that cuts down on so much of the crime, so much of the disease that is associated with prohibition. What's your take on the war on drugs? And what do you think, uh, how we can help the addiction community? Well, it's really interesting because, you know, as a libertarian, I think that everybody should be able to do whatever they want. Right. Um, you know, and so if a poppy plant can be planted in your yard and you can make your own opiates in your basement and take them. I don't do that, by the way. I never, I don't do that. Right. No, that I mean, that's there. not my opinion as a doctor, but right. just like from a theoretical philosophical standpoint, sure. um, from a libertarian standpoint, but that's, you know, that's only if we're really in a true vacuum, um, you know, and we're not. Right. Uh, so I, I personally think that, as you said, 4% of the population or four out of every thousand have the gene. And so everybody's on a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody after that 4%, I mean, even that 4% is on this side of the spectrum. And there's people that can shoot up heroin for a year every day. And then wean themselves off and say, I'm done with this in a week or two and go through the uncomfortable, you know, and then just go back to the normal life and never have a problem again. Sure. They actually, so there's that spectrum. They actually yeah. did that. Dr. Thomas Klein, he actually worked in uh, California at Stanford when all these GIs came back from Vietnam who were shooting up mm -hmm. pure IV heroin. And everybody was so concerned about everybody being addicted and all these GIs coming back and it being horrific on um, on them and their families, but it turned out that statistic of four out of a, of a thousand held true for even that population who are under, you know, extreme stress and getting the purest drug that you could get. And so I do think, yeah. I like that how you talk about the spectrum because alcoholism is a spectrum as well. And I think they've break, broken that down into about five different classes as well. So that's a, that's a great way to put that. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think that, you know, if we start having mercy on each other, being kinder to each other, uh, live in a world where we don't put people in boxes and label them right. and, you know, as good or bad or right or wrong. Um, and I think that as we start adopting, uh, you know, I don't even want to call it alternative. They're the things that have always been done, um, you know, like, mindfulness, meditation, um, you know, group therapy, therapy in general, talking about problems. I think that more and more people will be able to find coping mechanisms to deal with this and it'll become more normalized. As soon as things are normalized and accepted by society, then we can affect change. So, um, you know, I, I took care of so many people who came in with heroin overdoses and, you know, I get five minutes with them before they get pissed off and leave the ER and rip the IV out of their arm because I gave them Narcan. And I take those five minutes to try to talk to them and to try to counsel them, but they need more than that. Um, they need resources. They need family and friends that are able to, that are there for them. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that the government should pay for them to go to the spa, you know, rehab center every time they decide they want to go into rehab. But I think that we need to make, make, all diseases, all afflictions, mental and physical health issues, normalized. We're all, you know, we're all one species. And we all have issues, definitely. I think that, uh, especially mental health, I think the DSM does a lot of disservice to a lot of things, trying to put people in boxes, personally. And I think there's a lot of, um, again, talking about conspiracies, a lot of stuff that's in that that doesn't help people, doesn't serve people, that serves the, the psychiatrists and the, the, um, the pharmaceuticals that they're pushing. But that's that's just my take on that. But we're about to wrap up here. I, I appreciate your time here, Dr. Houston. What would you leave with um, for people, for patients that you would like them to know um, from the physician's point of view, what they can do 
Um, the number one thing maybe for their health that we're not thinking about that doctors on their side wish that every patient was doing? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, that doctors wish every patient was doing. Or more patients. Maybe that's a more patients. Yeah. Um, wow. This is an important question that I should have thought about. No, that's uh, I think I'm sorry I to spring think... it on you. On your website, you talk about, um, you know, a lot of the, um, the, the prevention side of medicine and the holistic side right. as well. And I was trying to think of a way to say that all in one, in one word, you mm -hmm. know, um, just know thyself and take care of thyself. I think and that's, that's it. That is really great. I think that's great for our audience to hear. Now, real quick, uh, your organization, we talked about it a little bit. It's HPEC. Um, is that what your main focus is now? Are you still focused on treating patients um, in the ER in your private practice, or are you 100% focused on the crypto world? Yeah, so just a little background. Um, I've been working on the HPEC project for a year now. Mm -hmm. um, my mother was also diagnosed with leukemia, so I've been taking care of her and working on this project. Um, and I'm sorry uh, about that. Yeah, I mean, she's actually doing well, um, so I'm happy about that. And so, yeah, I've been working on HPEC. It's my passion. Uh, you know, I've, I've always been a patient advocate. I always will be a patient advocate. But I realized that in order to be a patient advocate, I have to be a physician advocate also. And so that's what this is about. It's about advocating for physicians to be able to practice medicine free from third-party interference so that they can take care of you. Excellent. Excellent, Dr. Houston. I think that's great for our audience to hear is that the healthcare system is about individuals providing a service and the other, per the other party, the patient, voluntarily engaging that service without interference from others. I think that's the yeah. definition of libertarianism, really, is that you're, you're free to exercise your rights in voluntary transactions with another person. And, that, and it's a win-win situation, or at least that's how it should be. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, thank you for your time. And we're going to have all your information where people can follow you on Twitter. I think it's a great feed for not only people who are in the, the healthcare industry, but also people who are concerned about where the healthcare industry is going and about regulations and what we can do to try to start pushing back against that. And so we'll have all that information at chronicallyhuman.co. So I want to thank Dr. Houston for her time and thank you everybody for listening today. And we will see you next time. Thank you.